my big proponent to everybody is that it's not about them. It's always about you. Lead by example, right? And you change you first. Welcome to Series 2 of the One Year No Beer Podcast. If you haven't hit subscribe yet, then hit that button so you don't miss another episode. Hello and welcome to this episode of One Year No Beer Now. You might be thinking, hang on a second, it's that weird voice again from a couple of weeks ago that's not Rory and it's not Jen. Yes, it's me again, producer James, jumping back into the hot seat because I've got an interesting episode for you guys this week. A few weeks ago, Rory was in London town and we were doing some podcast interviews for some amazing content that you are going to be hearing coming up. But... Um, I've got a very big community over on a platform called Clubhouse where we have entrepreneurs and business owners who are trying to be doing have more in their lives and we have on daily guests who can offer their expertise and their guidance to our community of business go-getters. So I said to Ruri, hey, as you're in town, could you come and meet me a little bit early, jump on live at seven o'clock in the morning and talk to the community, talk to the audience, talk to them about the journey of what it took to create One Year No Beer. Now, I personally have never heard the whole story from Ruri delivered in one succinct session. Obviously, from producing the show, I've heard elements of it, I've heard segments of it, I've heard bits of the journey along the way, but I've never heard it in one place. And I, because I'm a podcaster myself and I create loads of podcasts, and also, quite frankly, I'm a little bit nosy, I love, love, love diving deep with people to find out, really scratching the surface to get to the true, true, true core of the story. So that's exactly what we did. So in this episode of One Year No Beer, you're going to hear Ruri live as my guest on a platform called Clubhouse. Um, if you like this kind of content, by the way, come and check out Clubhouse. Come and check out the Winners Club. We're going to get Ruri on much more often because he went down an absolute storm, as I'm sure you will work out why when you listen to this content from our community. So check this out. This is One Year No Beer. This is Ruri and me talking live for one hour in front of a, a live audience of about 500 odd people who tuned in for the content. And as I say, this for me is the most insightful explanation of the journey of one year no beer that I have heard and a lot of this now makes sense the expertise uh, the passion the love the engagement that Ruri and Jen and the whole OYMB team give to the community after this conversation it all made so much more sense let's dive in to me chatting if not grilling Ruri live on Clubhouse I don't think in the sort of the production of that show I've ever, and I was thinking about this last night in sort of preparation for this conversation. I, was like, I don't think I've ever heard you succinctly tell your story of how you've got it. Obviously, you share bits of it mm-hmm. throughout the podcast, and again, a lot of people who listen to the podcast again, it's tens of thousands of people each month will have listened to episodes before. But I don't know that I've heard the journey. Yep. How did one year no beer even start? Because I know sort of like said it earlier and it wasn't to blow smoke up your bum because God knows I don't need to do that for you. Mm. But I, I, it was a brand that I knew of before and I was like, this this thing's like really making an impact. And I followed it for a little while. I think I was part of the Facebook group because I don't drink, but I wasn't a follower of it for the information. I just liked what you've done as a brand, if yeah. that makes sense. So how did it? How did you start on this intriguing journey to create one of the world's most 
change making platforms. I'm I'm going to take you through a bit of, bit of a whistle stop. Okay, uh, because I th- buckle I think up, guys. I think this, like um, Steve Jobs says, you never understand in the moment, but looking back and connecting the dots is is, is when it becomes clear. Um, and I, w- I was always um, significantly different from other human beings, um, hyperactive. And uh, my parents were offered an ultimatum at six years old. They were like, that kid is nuts, either counseling or drugs. Um, and I'm very fortunate at that time, I believe. I mean, medication helps many people with ADHD and, and things like that. Um, I believe, I'm, uh, uh, you know, for me, that started up because they chose um, um, therapy. That started this process of trying to understand what was going on in my brain. Um, I was six and, years uh, old, six, yeah, seven years old, six years old. Wow. Through most of my schooling, I was uh, I was in counselling and very troubled and difficult and energetic, um, and um, yeah, getting myself into a bit of trouble now and again. So, um, I, I um, then I, I I knew I was I was different. I had been told that I was different. Did you know at the time? Oh yeah, what well, I was different. Yeah, yes. I mean, yeah, absolutely. And was that a good? Was that like a good thing? Like, oh, I'm different, or was it like? Were you, did you shy away from it, or did you lean into it? No, I, it was very difficult. I was lonely, um, and part of that is what I understand now is that it was driven by all driven by loneliness. You know, one of five. I mean, I I've done so much um, trauma therapy and understanding trauma and everything else because I can't heal others until I heal myself, um, and and so. You know, going back and understanding this has now been amazing, like how this all shaped. But interestingly, my mum would say to me, and, and the, oh, you slept four hours in every 24. Uh, well, now, now I understand the science is that they believe that the, a huge proportion of ADHD and ADAD is actually created in the brain by sleep deprivation in babies. Right. So, so mum, not getting a good sleep pattern for my child, uh, for, for her, for her child early on, right, is part, part or could be all of what made me ADHD and changed my life significantly forever. I'm extremely, you know, proud and glad to be ADHD. I've written many articles about it being my superpower, um, that I am a nuclear power station. I can do 10x the work of other people. Um, with I will ADHD. attest to that. <laughs> I will attest to that. Um, but I also, I also have to do an enormous amount of work and self-care to manage myself because otherwise it's just, you know, an, an erratic explosion and very dangerous. And, uh, you know, I can become self-destructive incredibly quickly. Um, and, you know, I was self-destructive for m- much of my younger years in life. And of course, this level of mental health is what then drove addictive behavior or, or you know, an, an unhealthy relationship with drugs and alcohol uh, for many, many years. So um, just going back into that, uh, you know, um, I, I struggled in school, always different, but um, I got to sort of 14 and I didn't understand where I fit into society. Um, and I tried to take my own life. I had two. At 14? Uh, yeah, at 14. There was one at 13, which was very much a cry for help. And then at 14, I was pretty determined to do it. I, I stepped off a of stairs with a, a taijutsu belt around my neck. Um, and I was fortunate, miracle, don't know. But my parents actually came back early from their anniversary dinner at the moment that I'd, um, I'd done that. Um, and uh, so anyway, um, cry for help, not help. I'm not judging anyone who's ever been suicidal. I'm not saying whether you're a cry for help or not. I think that judgment is horrendous. I think at the end of the day, if you're having su- any kind of suicidal thoughts, I feel for you. I want to give you love. I want to give you understanding. I want to say, hey, you know, look, let's try and turn the corner together here. Not judge you on whether you're being attention seeking and that's a lot of what the response i got from 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 people again and drove more loneliness and things like that 
But coming back from that, that suicide is my dad um, really want, he understood about hope. Um, and interesting, again, the, the science around hope is incredible, right? This is the reason why people go around cancer wards trying to give patients hope because their, their likelihood of surviving something like cancer is hundreds of times more likely if they have hope. Um, and, and hope is incredibly powerful. It will change your relationship with the negative behavior and all of these things. So we have to have hope. And it's really like a foundational part. So in get, trying to get me to find hope, um, he uh, encouraged me to write a letter to somebody famous. He was like, look, you know, who, who inspires you? Um, and Richard Branson was my thing there. You know, I'd, I'd, at a young age, I'd started reading self-help books, age 12. Um, <laughs> uh, what were you looking for in those books? Was it the answer to the questions that you couldn't find? And did you do that off your own back? Or was that were one of your therapists like, you should do this? Because that's quite an astute move as a 12-year-old. So first of all, I'm a, a, a very different boy, okay? Growing up with an English accent, parents who were brought up in England on a remote Scottish island on the Isle of Mull. Okay, now, only just a generation. Where they make all the previous. whiskey? Yeah, there's some whiskey made, not Isla. That's Isla. Oh, okay. Uh, is, is a lot of whiskey. Ironic that so this is where you've been crafted <laughs> and the path you've then gone on. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, a, there's many ironies here. I mean, I used to introduce myself as brewery, like brewery without the beer <laughs> when, when I was 14. Now we're on a company called One Year No Beer. <laughs> It was all meant to be. The fates had a lot. So you're, when you say like lonely and sort of like remote, you're actually physically very remote. Yeah, well, that, but also one of five kids, very, very busy parents, so abandonment issues, um, bad sleep patterns, ADHD. You can, you're start, I'm starting to form all of Which the wasn't a thing 30, 40 years ago, was exactly. it? It wasn't understood. 20 30. years ago. 20, no. <laughs> 20 years long, ago. hard years ago. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So the, um, so the book, so you're reading the self-help books and, and yeah, what, um, the, the, it, part of that was to understand, you know, I felt, I knew I was different and my, my, this was what my parents kept saying to me, you're special, you are different. Now that has a two double edged sword. Mm. Um, and the double edged sword is that that one then creates is this need, this need to be special and different. And so there was more attention seeking, more self-destruction, more everything else. But also on the positive side is I was like, no, no, I am here to make a massive impact in the world. And I, I was saying that in school and, and I was, I was disassociating entirely from other people because I was like, but I'm not like you. You want to be in the, you want to work in the forestry and you want to take over your dad's fishing business and work on the boat. No, no, I'm going to change the world. This is simple. And I thought, I was like, by 30, I'm going to have changed the world. You know, that's the, I was like, this is it. So when my dad encouraged me to write that letter, I, I'm going to write letter to Richard Branson. And I said, I'm looking forward to having lunch one day with you. Um, I'm going to, sorry, I'm going to change the world one day and I'm looking forward to having lunch with you. A bit more into it, but that was in summary. Um, there's a bit of a full circle, which we can touch on later about Richard Branson. Um, but um, haven't had that lunch yet. Just to go into there, um, just before the pandemic started, uh, a friend in the US popped up and said, I've just heard, because I've told this story about writing this letter to every investor, over two and a half thousand investors um, in the, this company, um, every, every, you know, most podcasts and things. And this guy in the US popped up who I knew through a friend of a friend. And he said, I just heard you about Richard Branson. I'm actually going to have lunch with him on Necker Island. Do you want to come? And I was like, oh, let me just think about this for a second. <laughs> um, and so I was the like, realization yeah. of a boyhood dream. Uh, yeah, I <laughs> yeah. think I will. Yeah, yeah, I think I, think I will. Um, and... <clears throat> 
he uh, so it was due to happen in June, um, and um, anyway, pandemic happened, and the organizer of the whole thing was like, "I just can't believe your story. Richard's going to love it. I can't wait to sit you next to him." And I was like, "I can't wait to face oh. with Richard next to my dad, yeah. going, hey, dad, you know." And he was always like, "Look, you, Rue, you don't need to keep going. You've you've done it. You know, you've built a business here which is changing people's lives. You know, hundreds of thousands of people's lives, arguably millions of people's lives because of the impact or the wider impact." Um, and um, anyway. Unfortunately, the pandemic happened. They cancelled the trip, and my dad died two months later. Um, so I never actually got to sit and do that. But the lunch is still happening for sure. <laughs> and dad will still be watching down you for, for, for very certain. Yeah. So, so from the what 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 did your dad do for a job? Um, he had run multiple businesses. Um, so he used to have a he, he um, grew up on a farm in Norfolk, then moved to Scotland and tried to to farm up there. And there's just no money in that. And they he essentially squandered their wealth, my inheritance, over the following, I don't know, 20 years trying to run a hill farm, running a recording studio, um, running all sorts of different businesses, trying to make it work on the Isle right. of Hull um, and um, just couldn't. And in the end, you know, it was, it, it, yeah, they, they'd pretty much lost everything. Um, they live, dad's now passed, mum lives a very humble life. I've supported them for many years. Um, and, um, you know, that is also a driver, you know, when you're when you're young and you probably have a bit more than other people, which I did growing up, right? I grew up on a state house on Mull, so just another reason to get bullied, right? English state house, you know, it was it was telling people you're going to change the world, to school, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I was a bullied kid, made yourself a target <laughs> for sure, um, and um, yeah. So why, why did he? I wonder why your dad thought that writing a letter to somebody would be the thick would, would help you because, because to come home from an anniversary meal to the situation that they came home to yeah. a, as a parent must be as bad as it gets. Yeah. So to then to have the foresight to go, right. I like what's currently happening is not working. The therapy is not working the way that we want it to. Yeah. We're trying to make him see that he's special, but like I say, it's definitely a double edged sword because then you feel like you have to live up to that special title and maybe that action at 14 is just another move of someone who is special and needs special looking after, if that makes sense. I wonder how he came to the realisation of that's the thing that will yeah. potentially help this kid. It's a good question. But I think, I think you know, dad was always, he didn't believe in any institution or any support or any government like that. He was like very much the entrepreneur. You've got to pave your own way. You've got to be different. You've got to charge your mm. own thing. It drove that into me very hard. You know, it would literally be like, oh, is that the path? Okay, well, that's not where I'm going. Um, so we'll go over <laughs> here, right? And, and I carried that so much forward into life. I remember a moment where we're going through to the airport with Jen, and I was like, oh, look, um, I'm actually going to go down the ramp backwards. And she's like, why do you have to go down the ramp backwards? I was like, because I just can't follow the, I can't follow that where the sheep are going. I have to go this other direction. But I think the reality is where he saw it was, there was no real environment, no real support on the Isle of Mull. And he didn't believe in the therapy that, 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 that I was getting all the support. Oh, did he not? Getting. No, he didn't. Um, so, so who so, saw but he, pushed that, your mum? What he saw was these books will help you. Right. The, these 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 books are where they've changed my life. So they were involved with Amway for a few a bunch of years. And the best ah. thing out of Amway was the tapes and the, and yeah. the books. Um, so I just grew up with those tapes and books and Tony Robbins and Tony Robbins and Tony Robbins. Um, and I think that's where a lot of that came from. And, I, you know, that's one of my great things now. And I, we all hear it. Right. I'm just, we've probably said it every day in here. It's like, 
if you're not reading, if you're not reading consistently and constantly and, 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 and it's the great, one of the greatest resources of support out there um, and the cheapest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, you know, that's the life-changing stuff right there. So, so from 14 uh, and, and, and luckily the, the decision that you made didn't have the, the, the desired outcome that you had in that moment. Where, where do you go from there? So you're the kid on the island, you finish school, do you go off to university? Do you get off that rock as soon as you can sort of thing? Or did, did you, did, did you, I don't even know how to phrase the question. Was, was, were you aware that your environment potentially wasn't supporting your mental well-being because you are, I imagine that kind of island living is just tough. Yeah. In general, because the weather's tough, logistics are tough, like everything about that is tough. Wild. 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 Um, you know. Uh, and amazing as well, I imagine. Amazing. I, t- I took the girls up the other day, love horse riding. I was like, let's go on the horses. Like, Where's the horses? I was like, all around you. Look at the trees. And the, you put them on a long branch of a tree and you sit them on the end and you push it up and down like that and you go, nay, and they're on a horse. And that, w- that was my growing up. Um, so, um, you know, we didn't have TV. No, no TV until really 18. My gran used to record some stuff and send it up now and again, but we were just outside, shut the door, go and play. But um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I, I knew I wanted to get be an entrepreneur. I knew I wanted to make an impact. I saw entrepreneurialism is the way to make the impact. Um, set up my first business at 15 um, and that was selling computers and PCs on the Isle of Mull. I was pretty much white labeling somebody else in, in Glasgow and, and shipping their, their products. Um, I didn't make a huge amount of money of, of, um, I mean, I made hardly any money at all. Um, and, and ran the business for two years. Most of the money was made from literally charging bored housewives how to use their mouse and use the windows and open it up and everything else because they were like, Oh, I go there for a few hours and teach them how to click things and everything else. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, and, and so I, I, I started this entrepreneurial journey and shortly after I launched that business and before the legal age, I, I got out of school um, and uh, I'd had enough. I just, I, I didn't fit academia at all. Um, and I was smart, six ones, two twos, um, without really applying myself. Um, so I was intelligent, but just didn't, didn't follow the academic system whatsoever back then. So um, that was the first business. And then and the first business was a disaster. So I was like, I need to go and learn how to sell, um, which took me to door-to-door sales in Glasgow. Uh, oh, wow. Hardest, absolute oh, wow. Edge. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, made myself the top salesman in Scotland, completely transformed um, how, they, how they did the sales and made a bit of a, uh, a name for myself. And then... What were you selling door-to-door? Gas and electric. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, selling discount, selling money. Right. Not hard. Yeah. But the thing was, I sat in McDonald's with three other guys, um, as we did in the rain in Glasgow often. Um, and we were like, I'm sick of the door being slammed in my face. Like every time they see us, you just slam the door. And it was like, it's because of what we're wearing, you know, this whole shirt and tie rubbish. We look like a salesman. Yeah, but who, who, who does get in the door and doesn't look like a salesman? The postman, you know, he, he gets welcomed. Milkman. Gas meter reader guy. So off down to the hardware store, gas key, tool belt, tools scruffy jumper blah 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 turn up the or knock on the door come in do you want a cup of tea boom <laughs> that decision made me a shed load of money i mean i was really 19 years old two three grand being paid on friday going absolutely nuts in glasgow my boss would say ruri i don't know anyone i've never met anyone who can be paid what you're paid on friday and not not be able to afford the bus on monday <laughs> So you obviously that entrepreneurial spirit and that like 
like I say, that sort of ADD sort of mentality that wasn't known about then, which would have exactly. just been looked at as, like I say, attention-seeking, hyperactive, just a trouble, you know, what they called you back in those days, a troubled youth. Yeah, bad. Bad, yeah. Well, the bad label also became a pride. Um, in fact, later when I was 19, I got a tattoo on my back to remind me of the devil on my back. Um, always there, always ready to take action and just slip me down the, 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 the naughty path. path. Absolutely. Wow. <laughs> So you go, so you go on to, to selling, uh, and what what was it about sales specifically? Because, like I said, you wanted to learn more about entrepreneurship. Why did you link selling and entrepreneurship together? Um, well, I, I don't know where that first part comes, but I, I remember the key part of being one specific phone call with a guy, and he was like, "Mate, honestly, just go and learn how to sell," and then hung up. Um, and that was like a customer when I was, uh, was I 16 running this little business on the Isle of Mall called Ultimo Media? No. And I was like, grandiose title. Yeah. <laughs> Ultimo Media. Um, so, uh, when a couple, I, I then thought, right, I've, I've done door to door. That's great. But now I need to get more serious to sales. So I want a corporate job. And I got a corporate job at, um, Caterpillar, um, selling plant machinery, which oh, okay. was, I mean, three years of driving, Caterpillar trucks, right? You know, being flown out to Malaga to learn how to drive the newest truck and demonstrate the it. The dream job, you say? Oh, it was the, awesome. the dream job. It was awesome. Drive this big thing. Okay, cool. They, they, they um, you know, the thing is on Mal, you know, when I grew up is that drink driving was just the norm. Um, in fact, what you often did is pick up the copper in lo- the local village because he was hammered so that you could drunk drive him back to Tobamori, right? You know, that, that's, that's, that's what was going on when I was growing up. Um, and everyone rolled cars. And, and bashed it. I mean, you know, that's what we did. Yeah. So when I started this job, they gave me a brand new Renault Laguna Sport, which arrived two weeks prior to the job starting so I could get down there. Guess what? I drove it straight up to Mull and towed it before <laughs> I even started the job. I wrote off five company cars in three years. My boss said, I'm going to get you a bicycle. <laughs> wow. So you were, you were, again, was that like the... Because you talked about you have the ability to hit the self-destruct button fast. Was that exactly. what it was? It, it was that. It was definitely that element. But also there's this part as well in ADHD. It's the missing of the dopamine. And of course, that driving cars like that is very, very intrinsically linked into into ADHD and things. So um, make good rally drivers, which is one of the reasons why I did um, racing in the UK for a little bit. Um, so, yeah, it's searching for the dopamine rush, always trying to search for that dopamine because it's a dopamine de- deficiency. So you do the caterpillar job. Yep. You learn even more how to how to sell. And then um, I was doing a bit of sales, and uh, I mean, we'll be we will literally be here all day going on this entrepreneurial journey because I, I actually set up five companies by the time I was twenty five. Um, I, I early, you know, after that job, I started a sales agency, which I raised a little bit of money from um, Scottish Bank and a couple of investors, um, and it didn't last. But I did employ ten people for three years running a sales agency call center. Um, I tried to set up an IT distribution center. I tried to set up a, an ISP. Um, I say ran five businesses, but yeah, some of them were really projects and, and never saw the light of day because of my own stupidity. But all of them carry amazing lessons like, A, never have your accountant write your legal documents, always pay your lawyer, right? And I had to, it took me two businesses to really know that you have to pay a lawyer and you have mm-hmm. to pay them and, you know, pay them well because it will save your ass one day when, <clears throat> for me, 
a small um, sales agency of 10 people working for a major blue chip corporation and they look through the, the, the agreement, which I'm working on commission only, and they go, uh, right, we're going to cancel the contracts, it's 30 days, and we haven't made any sales. Yeah, but we've introduced you to every single hotel in the UK. We've, we've phoned thousands, six months. Yeah, but we haven't made any sales. So we don't owe you any money. And we've got 21 people in our legal team. So good luck. Okay, that was a quarter of a million quid and the end of my business. So never wow. have your accountant write your legal, <laughs> legal docs. Never skimp on that. Get those legals sorted. And there's lots of other lessons that I painfully learned through these different businesses. But by the fifth one, I was in the pub on, in Scotland, which is a recurring theme up on Mull, having a drink with my tail between my legs, chatting to a mate. And he was like, oh, you know, you should go on The Apprentice. That's where all failed entrepreneurs go. And at the time... <laughs> Thanks, mate. At the time, I was calling myself a serial failpreneur, right? right. I was like... <laughs> This whole dream of being Richard Branson, it was like, this is not working. This is not working out. Not working. I've got the same I number am, of companies as him, but it's not panned out. I am shit. I need to go get a job. <laughs> um, so I applied for The Apprentice, and then six months later, multiple interviews, flew down to London, got accepted, um, sit outside the show. This is series two, um, where Ruth Badger won. Um, and um, I'm like ready to go on the show, and the, the, you know, the producer's coming in and out, in and out, in and out. They're like, you're going on, you're not going on, you're going on, you're not going on. And eventually came out and said, look, I'm really sorry but you're not going on the show this time. We'll fly you back to Scotland. Um, and, um, okay, rejection. Uh, back to the, the airport. And I was like, I am not going back to Mull. Everyone knew I was going on The Apprentice, right? Everyone was there on the pier waving me goodbye, you know, all eight people who live on the island. Um, so I can't face that. Our prodigal son is going, yeah, bye, my everybody. Family. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, and I looked at the departure board and I was like, okay, um, the next flight goes to Ibiza. I'll take that one. So, um, headed out to Ibiza, dumped my bags into, into space, check in, stayed in there for three days. Um, and then I thought I'd better find, um, somewhere to stay. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't need a bed for three days. I was in Ibiza. Um, you get the picture. Um, and then th kind of through a friend of a friend, I ended up bumping into an oil broker, uh, told him my story and he was like, Amazing man, but you need to come and be an oil broker. Um, and so that's how I then moved down to London to become an oil broker. Spent 13 years being an oil broker. Did, did you know anything about the, the, the world of oil up until that point? Or Absolutely it... nothing. Didn't know any of it exists. Didn't really know anything about the stock market or broker. I didn't know anything about that trading world. I'd never known, no. never, ne never known anything about it. And the thing was... In between doing all those interviews and apprentice and going out there and, and you know, he, I had then had to go and do a qualifications. I'd got this job and I'd been offered equity and I was being paid 65 grand to do sales for this, um, uh, you know, um, land business in Edinburgh. And so I was like, OK, I'm, I'm doing really well for myself here. And here was this guy saying, OK, you have to move down to London on your own. You have to find all your own accommodation and you're going to be paid 27 grand. And that's it. And I was like, I'm not going to take that. And the guy who introduced me, he was like. You, you must believe me. You must take this, okay? Because that number is irrelevant. You will see very quickly. And boy, was he right. <laughs> sure, in the beginning, I was literally sharing a bed with somebody to try and, you know, um, um, to, to, because I had no money, accommodation and everything else. Like literally, please, can I stay at your place? Um, uh, but that very, very quickly turned around um, being an oil broker. And then you did that for 13 years? Yes. Uh, started on crude oil, uh, which was a baptism of fire. 
and um, you know, very, very senior guys, been there a long time, sitting on their accounts. Here comes this young guy, and my boss was like, look, basically what you need to do is you need to do the entertainment for all of us because we can't be arsed. And I was like, great, what's my budget? I, I don't know, it's up to you, but you know, five grand a month is the sort of limit. And I'm like, great. So my job was to take all the crude guys out clubbing, restaurants. and I mean, there weren't clubs in London that didn't know me because I had to get sometimes 20, 30, 40 guys last minute into a club without there being a single bat of an eye because then they were just like, how do you do that? And I recognized very quickly that that was my way to build a brand. Like when Ruri's having a session, find out where is he? When Ruri's organizing a party, I mean, one of the biggest parties I ever put on. And there are quite a lot of things about Wolf of Wall Street that um, I recognize. <laughs> One of the biggest parties I put on was a club called District. We took it over 250 people in there. Um, we had we had these, you know, basically stripper girls angle grinding their crotch. Um, and, you know, it's called... Oh, I've the, seen yes, that. that, yeah, yeah the, the sparks just, all over the... Yeah, exactly, yeah. all of that, you know, all the crazy stuff. So anyway, um, great fun. Great, um, great time. But what I didn't realize is that I had found the perfect thing for me, which was basically that the more I entertained, the more wealth I made or the more money I made. Um, and that here I could really bury my, my um, negative mental health uh, into alcohol and drinking. You know, it was easy to go for lunch on Tuesday and for lunch to finish at 5 a.m. without stopping. Um, and I'd met my wife and family and that was causing, you know, as you'd imagine. Oh, so you've met Jen within this period as well? When I met her in London. Right. Um, my lovely, my lovely wife, um, which, uh, yeah, I met her in a seventies party dressed as kiss all in one spandex. She was, I was, you, were. <laughs> she wasn't dressed up. Um, of course she, she she'd just come from a casting. She's a model. She was a model. Um, she just come from a casting and I knew everybody at the party apart from this beautiful tall blonde. Um, and um, so, yeah, uh, grabbed her on the dance floor. She had absolutely no interest in this idiot, but I was tall cause I was wearing six inch high heel boots. And so she was like, okay, well, you know, well, tall's tall. thing. Um, and then when I, when I tracked her down through multiple people, you know, a couple of days later, I walked into this bar and, and I was like, you know, hi. And she was like, who the fuck are you? Gene Simmons. <laughs> and I was like, remember, remember that guy? And she was like, oh my God, you're really short. <laughs> so it was a bit of a challenge. But you know what they say? Jen, for context, is this like gorgeous six foot Amazonian force of nature who is like a triathlete, like still competes at a very, very high level. Oh, yeah. Like, like Ultra. a proper force, Ultra. force of nature. So I imagine she would have literally <laughs> said it to you as dead pan as you just said there. Yeah. Oh, you're really sure. She she wasn't doing that stuff then. Oh, okay. Um, she was doing what I was doing, which is partying and occasional drug use and all of that kind of stuff right, living okay. in London. But she recognised that that stuff that is is a fruit to a healthier life and not doing all this other stuff. Yeah. And um, so she, yeah, I mean, she. She both met in that environment. That you were oh, we frequenting, oh, right? Oh yeah, all over London, lots of parties and and uh, crazy clubbing and um, lots of lots of that stuff. So, what point during that period? Because again, from like a, a guy who was at that point single and lived on an island and had had multiple failed businesses and five before twenty five, and then you go to to London and you know all the all the roads in London are paved with gold. It sounds like it kind of ended up in that situation. And like I say, you've ended up the more the more fun you have, the more entertainment that you give to people, which ticks into the box of the attention and being special and all those other things, the more money you're making. But ultimately, the more 
unhealthy that this is actually becoming for you yeah. what, what was was there a a trickle of like oh i'm not sure this is good for us anymore was there like a moment you're like shit we've got to, collectively we've got to change you and jen at this point now i was miserable um i would weep <clears throat> on the way to work um i was really unhappy um and also that is the alcohol and mm. that is the that is um it wasn't really much well later on it wasn't drug dr jen kind of put a lid on drug taking when we had kids um so that disappeared um and um although you know there was there was issues in our relationship very very feisty relationship too similar um very very um volcanic relationship in the beginning and you know my dad was like you guys are gonna last five seconds i mean this is impossible um and it's but what fun will have dad <laughs> most of our friends said the same thing right so it's testament to both of us that we've worked extremely hard on our yeah. marriage um and i'm a big proponent of that i think everybody needs to do the work yeah. <laughs> that's why we meet somebody yeah. who exacerbates all our issues <laughs> <laughs> Nice um, way of putting it. So, um, you know, she was trying to put the foot down and um, th th there was that bit and she was like, it's the job and it's the drinking and things like that. And um, for me, you know, we were sort of cutting loggerheads because I was like, well, you're extremely angry. She had incredibly traumatic um, uh, upbringing, um, childhood abuse from her mom and um, narcissistic and uh, she beat the kids and it was really, really traumatic. And none of this had been dealt with or processed. Um, so she was just a very, very angry um, uh, lady, and I same as you partying and just burying all that stuff exactly. as deep as it can go. Is that, which is this is all the fruit. Um, sorry, the fruit. The the it comes from that. You know, all all compulsive behavior, all compulsive behavior is driven from trauma. Most people don't know what their trauma is. I didn't really know what my trauma is. I I, I grew up in a in a what appeared like a wild, happy thing like that. I had to go through a lot of process to understand what my trauma was that drives this compulsive behavior. I'm just going to put it out there that if there is a behavior that you do compulsively that you struggle to stop, it comes from trauma. And in a way, it's a gift. The gift is, like I say to so many of our clients, if you have a negative relationship with alcohol or, uh, or anything like that, it's a gift. It's a gift that you need to look at your life about why this is showing up. And I encourage you to do the work. Um, and you can find a guide or a support to do the work. You can read the books. You can do all that stuff. But go do the work because that's what will change your life. And if you don't do the work and you just abstain, abstain from something, and this is what so many people do. They, they do a month of, of not drinking or they challenge themselves to that. They don't do the work. And often it just comes back or it comes back much worse or it mm. goes into something else. Porn, gambling, sugar, caffeine, whatever it is. So that's not the way to heal. The way to heal is to do the work. Sorry, sidestep there. How did you, so you mentioned that the, the, like the drug taking side of things stopped because Jen was like, right, we've got kids now, we're not no. doing that anymore. Yeah. How did you guys go on that transition from volcanic, super exciting partying relationship to, you know, stay at home parents? Because by the sounds of it, from what I'm hearing, Jen obviously, due to carrying the, the baby, would have physically had to have stopped oh, doing yeah, that yeah. stuff. Yeah. Whilst your job... stop all that, yeah. Well, your I job is on. still, she, she yeah, yeah. say, I mean, there's a, there's a great podcast uh, where we did together. It's very emotional. We both are very, very open about uh, how tough it was um, and how difficult and opposite end of the, the story we were. But um, so, um, you know, for Jen, she's like, I, I wanted to calm down for the kids and, and you stepped it up a notch. 
Now I understand why. Right, right? okay. I, I understand why because I know what happens chemically and what happens with a, with, a, with a female as soon as they give birth, like release all these chemicals that actually create that change for them to be in a better prepared situation to be mother and looking after a child. And then psychologically for the male, it can be very, very different. And this is what I felt. It was, I was like, good God, I'm trapped and all of this and I've got this my last of my life and the last moments and everything else. So um, I kind of stepped it up a notch. Um, and um, so we were we were looking and fighting for change, um, and what really came about the moment was, in part, I realised that here I was standing in front of somebody, just constantly arguing and getting them to change. Like you need to change, you need to change, and this is most marriages, this is most most relationships. You need to change, um, and I've discovered, and my 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 big proponent to everybody is that. It's not about them. It's always about you. Lead by example, right? And you change you first. And they nine times out of 10, they will come, they'll follow. Nine times out of 10, it takes a bit of time and they'll change, but just go all in on you mm. and, and they will shift. So I was like, okay, well, she's angry. I need to understand anger. So I took an anger management course. And on that anger management course, it said alcohol and coffee are the two biggest instigators of anger. So I was like, okay, well, it's a 90 day course. I'll drop them while I'm doing it. Um, I'll, I'll stop doing alcohol and coffee. And I, at the time I was still an oil broker, the only oil broker in the history of oil broking who was not drinking. <laughs> My boss said, you are committing commercial suicide. Um, and I built up really? a very successful desk um, from zero to market leader in under three years, decimated the competition. Um, and, um, yeah, so I'd been very successful and they were like, no, no, you're, this is all going to go under. Your whole business is proponent on you taking people out and being known for that. But I just got very, very smart about it. Some of my customers never knew I wasn't drinking. And so that's the whole stealth drinking thing. Crazy that I have to actually create a program. Yes, we have a program to help people stealth drink, right? But it's true. There are people that they know. So you'd go out and pretend that you were drinking yeah. with clients? Yeah. Really? Yeah. And, and wow. I had to learn by mistake. Here's an example. I go out with one client where I just know he's not going to do business with me if I'm not drinking. That's a fact. You, I'm not, he won't do business with me if I'm not toe for toe with him drinking. And we might get onto this bottle and that bottle and this and that and this. And he's going to be watching how much I drink and he's going to be doing it. So I'm, I'm like, okay, I'm going to get myself prepared. I knew what I was doing already, so I'd go to the restaurant early. I would tip the the manager. I would make sure the, the other people knew. I'm like, no, I'm not drinking really? alcohol. Whatever they serve, it's got to be alcohol-free. If it's shots, mine's water. You've got to be smart about it. So that's the first one. I didn't probably communicate it quickly because it was an early, early um, test for me. But I sat down, and, and everyone's like, right, let's have a round of beers. You know, and it's like, yeah, yeah, everyone in. Yep, yep, yep. Um, and so off they go, and they pint, pint. Pint, pint, pint for everyone there. And then he comes over and he plops a little your gin and tonic, flat, sir. <laughs> a flowery glass, right? A flowery glass with a little <laughs> handle on it like this and a dusty, warm, alcohol-free beer bottle, which says alcohol-free on it, puts it in front of me. And I was like, what kind of fucking joke is this? <laughs> Get me a pint and a whiskey right now. And I was like, that, you know, yeah, I have to drink yeah. this session I could, because that would have been the end of a customer. But then I got smarter about it and I, and I worked out how to communicate better to people and I could go to these events and not do it. And then also... So would you go, so like, you'd be like with a, a bunch of customers you'd be like yeah run a beers just get the beers in and they would they would know they're going to pour you but it's a pint glass oh, alcohol yeah. free yeah but at the time again you didn't have pint pint um you know alcohol free back then so what i had to no. do is get two alcohol free bottles put in well it's actually one and a half or whatever yeah um, but then they would buy around so i'd always take my beer to the toilet 
and I'd just flush it out, go to the bar and get my alcohol-free one again and people wouldn't know. Um, so, How long were you also, doing that for? Well, I mean, to be honest with you, only handfuls of clients were expecting like that. So it would be periodic through the right. tier time of, of not drinking. So I stopped drinking for a year. Um, then I then I decided to have a few drinks because I was in a, you know, drinking control, got absolutely plastered, didn't happen at all. So I went back for a year. So in total, I kind of did two years alcohol-free while still um, broken before I left. Um, and, you know, the thing is, the, the, it was only really in the first year I had to do any of that kind of stuff. Because after that, I realized, well, hang on a minute. I had two juniors with me. And, you know, the juniors at oil broking businesses are not treated very well. You know, it's, it is, it's basically get me my bacon sandwich and go and get my shoes polished and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so, um, they, they, the, the, I, I would say to people, look, I'm, I'm very happy to come out, but these boys do all my drinking for me. And they thought that was the funniest thing, right? That they would order three drinks and the other two guys or the other one guy I was with would had to drink mine as well. And it, I'm sorry for the two lads. They're now very wealthy. So I'm not that sorry at all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, um, I actually saw them recently and yeah, they've done very well for themselves. So, um, yeah, it was it was these crazy techniques. And I hear from people all the time, you know, I hear from people, they're like, yeah, uh, that that is something I have to do. I have to be smart about people um, not seeing me not drinking. And that's the society we live in. Mm. That is it's very complex. It's very British. We, we have an intrinsic link, don't we, to... I'm not putting on British. To alcohol. It's global. Is it really? Yeah. I mean, China. China, you need to drink whiskey to do business. Um, Russia... Think, think, you know, there's so many areas where yeah. this is expected. Um, and, and also rural, right? Rural anywhere, alcohol is a significant part of it. So this is the, this is the interesting thing is, is, first of all, taking a step back about our relationship with alcohol and asking the question. Um, and that kind of happened for me. And, uh, you know, the reality is while I was oil broking, I was really, really unhappy. And I knew I wanted to change something as well. And, and, and uh, I couldn't work out what it was. And I was trying to do different things. I, you know, this therapist and this and seeing people and chatting and everything else. And, you know, this guy, this one therapist said, look, you need to go to an AA meeting and, and see where you might end up. And so I went to an AA meeting and I was like, holy smokes, I am nothing like that. I'm nothing like that. I was like, this is, and, and so that experience in a way stopped me from finding anything. And, and, and so really when I, later, as I, as I, I took a break, I mean, 90 days totally changed my life. It was unbelievable. Like the clarity, the energy, the focus, the drive came back. I remembered the letter. I'd completely forgotten. 11 years, right, of oil broking, I'd basically got paid too much and drunk too much that I forgot who I was. Wow. And then when I re and then what, what I realized was, and now that we teach people, is that if you're not aligned to meaning and purpose, if you don't, if you're not following the path that is true to yourself, if you're not, you will want to numb out. And that's what mm. drinking essentially is, is um, or a compulsive behavior is. So, in the, in the discovery, I was like, okay, I, I, I know, I've always kind of knew I was going to do something else, but I've known what it is. So over the first year, um, stopped drinking and I was like, there's nothing out there to help. Did you know you were going to do a year at that point? No, 90 just- days. No, I did 90 days. And then um, one, of a, one, of, one of my colleagues, um, he'd also taken a break, he was taking a break from booze um, and he was going to carry on. So I said, okay, let's, let's, let's keep going. So went on to do a year. And during that year, him and I got together. Um, Andy and we were like, there's something here because there's nothing out there. This is I don't, how many years ago when we were, this is 10 years ago, 
um, and there's nothing out there to support. You've got AA. Basically, you need to fuck your whole life up and yeah. be at rock bottom yeah. for you to be to get support. You're either for drinking the, or you're an addict. That's it. it was, yeah. There was no on In and between. Off. And I was like, well, hang on, I'm not that, but I do want change. And I want change for all the reasons that it's positively impacted my life, right? It's positively impacted every area of my life. You know, my, my health, my family, my relationships, my business. I was the only sober broker. Um, I was the only, only guy coming in on Friday sober and I cleaned up. I mean, I grew my business. It was already a market leader by 50% in the first year. You know, it's like we ended up doing 80% of Europe's jet fuel through our one desk, having entered the market with like three major competitors. So my thing to entrepreneurs is this is the one thing I guarantee you. If you're regularly drinking, this is the one thing that you can do that will open the door to everything else. It opens the door to better habits. It opens the door to better productivity. It opens the door to better clarity. When I coach the entrepreneurs now in our high-level program, I say, look, we're not going to – we had one of the um, – uh, a, a very successful entrepreneur come through the program, and he said, Ruri, I've just realized I've spent the last 10 years operating on 80%. Okay, I don't know what that's cost me, but it's millions. Now, the thing is, what we say to people is, we ain't going to find 100, right? 100 is easy to get you back to 100%. What we're going to find is 120%, where you're making better decisions, more authentic decisions, more aligned, you're more productive, you're healthier, your shit's together. Because, because alcohol is just so, un- it's, it's crap. It is a really, really crap drug. We'll get, we can talk about this, but I can't wait for other drugs to be more regularly available than alcohol. It's one of the worst for our health and social impact and everything else. So, so, so you do the initial year yourselves, and but then there's like the, I'm really interested in the transition from from that to what you've become, what you've created now, which is a behemoth in its space. And and the reason why I find it so interesting is because you are not one of those people who was. Um, you were not coming from a place of lack. You have not created this brand or this business because you needed it financially. If anything, you probably had to take a sideways step or a backward step to make this thing happen. Based on your facial expressions, it was quite a big backward step. But I, how- I, I, I invested six figures in one year, in the first year. Yeah. Um, and um, I wanted it. I wanted a pump. And I was like, look, this is, I want to get this out. I want to get it viral. We were doing videos. We were doing all this stuff. We were do, you know, trying to build a product. I had no idea what I was doing. I was just an idiot. Um, absolute idiot. I'm, I'm, I'm cannot wait to write my business book, the 10,001 things not to do when starting a business. Um, and, and hopefully, hopefully some of you will learn from my idiocy. So, um, but, but the thing was, uh, yes, I was, I stayed at one year, no beer. I, I stayed at the oil broking business. Now I spent 70% of my time building one year, no beer for 18 months. Um, and my bosses were like, what you're doing is amazing. Just keep doing it. Keep doing it. Um, and the thing was, what with one year and a bit, yeah. really? Yeah. So they knew. So you were doing it on like work time, and they didn't care because you probably I'd, still get built up a business. I trained two two um, juniors, drinkers. I'd taken them, yeah, drinkers. I'd taken them to all of my clients. I could. They they kept the business sustained while I spent seventy percent of my time on one year no beer. Interestingly, I mean, you know, invested a shed load of money. Um, I didn't take any salary for four years from it um, and, um, you know, just kept investing, kept investing. But um, I came out of, of a PR agency meeting one day and we'd spent 25 grand this PR agency. And the only thing they'd got was a matchbox in the, in the you know, actual paper mm. with no real mention. And I'm like, and they were proud of that. And I'm like, oh, for goodness sake, um, this is why PR is going to die. It's changing, <laughs> which is great. But um the, 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 I came out of there and I sat with Twitter and this is another little nugget for you. Um, the journalists are all on Twitter. 
Um, so I just found 10 journalists and I tweeted them saying, have you seen this new research which just came out about a 30 year study into alcohol? Um, got into a conversation with three of them. One of them was like, hey, I'm currently doing a piece on women in AA because they're not really acceptable, but I love what you're doing and I think I might do a piece for you. Wind forward a month later, I'm on a 10 minute feature on BBC News um, in 200 countries, BBC World News in over 200 countries. Um, massive exposure for us. Uh, and um, a friend of mine calls me up, a friend of a friend actually calls me up um, from Italy and he says, hey, I, I've just seen you on the news and I think what you're doing is amazing. I'm meeting the Dalai Lama next week. Would you like to meet him? Um, which is another, let's just check my diary. <laughs> so, Sorry, I brokered some oil that day. Let me see what I can move around. Yeah, exactly. You met the Dalai Lama. So a week later, I flew over to Pisa um, and um, it was it was an incredible, it was incredible. I mean, I through random shifts, um, um, and this is a bit Matrix style, random shifts, I ended up being in a different area and then there was kids asking him questions and, I ended up, uh, it's very bizarre, but he he was like waving across an area and he said, is there someone who wants to ask a question here, uh, uh, the kids? And I was like, me? And he was like, okay, cool, come over. And, and next minute I'm standing at this stage and I'm like, I'm going to ask him, I'm in front of thousands of people in Pisa. And so I got to ask him a question, which was um, around about addiction and things like that. And what he said to me changed my life forever. Um whew. I got off the stage and I was just like, okay, this was why I was put on the planet. You know, I, every, all of that drive, all of that energy, I know why I'm here. Um, and so I went in on Monday morning, handed in my notice as an oil broker. My boss was like, I don't understand. You can carry on earning all this money and do this. And I was like, I can't do another day. I have to be all in on this. That decision was the worst financial decision I've ever made <laughs> so far. Um, but um, yeah, um, meaning and purpose um, and helping people is one of the most important things. And if you, if you, if you are what we see so often with people who, who find a negative relationship with something like alcohol or drugs is that it's very, very likely that they're highly empathic um, and highly empathic people. We're not taught how to understand our emotions. Um, and so our, our emotions are great. And then we look to soothe. Um, and so the reverse side of that is that when you remove uh, compulsive behavior from them, like stop drinking alcohol, they, these emotions come back, which is difficult to process. But what they often find is that there are people that, that need to give back to the world. There are people that need to help others and support others. And this is this empathic part. And because they're not doing that in their role, they're needing to numb. And so when I coach again our high level programs, um, what I say to people is, look, you know, a, a director at JP Morgan is, is an example. Um, sorry, uh, you know, director level at major bank. Um, <laughs> Other banks um, are available. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, he, um, uh, it's like, hey, you know, it's just because you've discovered this, it doesn't mean you need to go in through the, the, the banking job away, but maybe it's that you need to actually have more coaching in your role so that you can be feeling like you're giving back yeah. a sense of meaning and purpose within that role with a view to actually, I'm going to go and build schools in, in, in Africa or something like that to give you more meaning. So, yeah. Why did, why did you have to go all in for, for, for your perspective? Because like I say, you're even coaching people in the high-level programs who not necessarily need to do that from learned experience of, you know, putting yourself pretty in financial turmoil very, very quickly. You sound like my wife. Right <laughs> yeah. She's like, we've, you never involved me in that decision. We've all been, we've, did you not? Nope. Oh, so did you just go to work on Monday, turn back up at lunchtime? Like, oh, hey, babe, why are you home early? Don't have a job anymore. Correct. 
Oh wow! Yeah. So the houses and the cars and the and the, all that stuff that uh, that had to dry up pretty quickly. So, um, oh, uh, yeah. Blimey. And I was on a terrible little startup salary, and 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 you know, I mean, we were still generating some income. I think we in in that um, year two we'd done a year anyway, whatever. Um, so it was still generating some income, but it definitely wasn't paying me much of a salary. What did what were you, what were your emotions on that train ride or that car ride back home? When you've made that decision, you've walked into your boss, you said, and, and like you say, he's turned around and gone, just don't do this. Yeah. Keep coming in, keep taking the six-figure salary, keep ticking it over. The lads are going to run it for you anyway. Take your money, build the thing, it's fantastic. What did you, when you sat on the tube, back out of the city or whatever, what the hell was going through your head? What emotions did you feel? Well, first of all, I never imagined for one second that it would ever go down. I only imagined that this was off to a rocket. Okay. Right. Um, the feature on the BBC changed everything. Um, I think we did seventy grand of revenue in ten days um, from the from the BBC wow. feature, um, and so I was like, okay, this is just about exposure, um, and um, exposure is something I've been personally very good about all of my life. No, <laughs> um, but uh, so anyway, um, I, I was like, I'm just going to go all in this, and it's just going to keep going up like a rocket ship. And um, what an idiot I was, but. Um, I think this is all the, the, the learning of the journey. You know, I would always say somebody starting up a, a business, then keep your, if you can, keep your role um, until you've built it up to a, a significant amount where it can support you, especially if you have a family. And it's always going to take longer than you imagine. And more importantly than that, even when it looks like it's good, it may not be good forever. You never know when something happens like the pandemic or some kind of um, worldly issue that shifts your business forever and therefore your, your income. So, um, the reality is I earn an absolute fraction of what I used to earn. Um, we live a lovely life, but a much, 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 much smaller life um, on Mallorca for now. Um, and we're building something which, you know, every single day I get messages from people about how I've changed their life or a handwritten letter from a son saying I've got my dad back. Um, you know, be reading out these messages to my wife at night with tears in her eyes, like, good God, you know, <clears throat> the fact that we get to do this, mm. it's an honor. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a gift. It's a pleasure. And I can't imagine living a life, not helping people like that. And, 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 you know, compared to the dark, negative, shouty, oil broking world, um, yeah, giving back and helping other people is, is, is powerful. And the dream, I think. What, what is, what has that done for you on a personal level? Because you mentioned earlier that people with ADD are very empathetic and people who have sort of addictive traits or, or the traits that would lead them down towards sort of addictive behaviours tend to be super empathetic. And you sort of talked about the, the impact and the difference of it you know, the difference in how you feel. It's not about the big salary. It's not about the, the cars and the houses and the watches and all that sort of stuff. And like I say, you've had to scale back potentially to lead a happier life, a smaller life, but a happier life. What does it feel like when you wake up and know that for the next 16 hours of that day, instead of trying to flog some oil, you're going to change some lives? And, I, and, I, and I'm part of the groups, so I can sort of see for research purposes, and I can see the messages in there every single day. They... Random things will pop up. Oh, I'm on day 293 and I've, I've really struggled today. Oh, and then everyone jumps on board. Keep going. Make sure you get out for your walk. You know, do your mindful practice, blah, blah. There's so much support in that community. What does it feel like to wake up and know that actually, because you were the kid who said, I'm going to change the world and I'm going to impact people. You, you do that. Yeah. But like that's your that's your day job now. 
Yeah, there's there's a there's a hard there's two hard truths in here. Is um, I I do an enormous amount of work on myself, and I continue to do work. Um, and in the same sense, so lots of me has changed. And there's an area I don't want to change, and that is the drive and the the mission to achieve something great. Um, which you know, trauma, ego, uh, being special. We've kind of listed a lot, an awful lot of those reasons. Um, but I spend I I look up for a few minutes. Um, pat myself on the back for a couple of seconds, which I kind of like, yeah, well done. But this is, this is a 0.00001% of where we're going. Um, and so I don't, I, I don't feel okay. I feel slightly proud. Yes. But this is nowhere near where the vision is, um, on the, on the scale that I think we can achieve impact in the world of what I am here to do. And a part of that is, that, that, yeah, okay, we raised a significant amount of money. We raised 5 million quid. In fact, we raised 1.1 million in five weeks from one email. Um, and that's another story. Um, but, but what the vision was there is really to create something that, that always is. I, I believe that prevention must always swim upstream. Okay, so the, if you want to be preventative, you've got to kind of keep going earlier and earlier and earlier. And what all my research showed, and we've, we we hire uh, PhD students at Stirling University to do research with us and publishing and, and, and um, getting published. Our research is important to us. But um, one of the things that we saw enormously um, is that people are searching for control sometimes years before they're thinking about taking a break from alcohol. Okay. So the control element was, is usually, oh, I wish I could stop at one or I wish I could just not, you know, I, I can't remember what I did last night. And, and so in that awareness moment is that is where I want to be. I, I, I want to develop the product or the tool that enables the individual at that moment. Um, and I believe that is part wearable, part, part app, things like that technology there. Um, and so that is what we are here to do is, swim upstream to, to prevent that. Now, um, all of the things that we can help people with, because relationship with alcohol is complex for the last, you know, eight years, I've been helping people stop drinking. Um, and that's great. And it changes lives. And I, I'm so proud of that. But the bit I'm pr- not proud of is that many, many, many people go back to drinking. And for many people, it comes back worse. And that is, I feel in part guilty about that. And also that I want to be able to find um, a solution to that. And one of the things there is that if you think about when you read a self-help book, as an example, you read a self-help book and maybe you implement 1% of it, or at best, if it's a really good book, 20% of it, right? That's the truth. Um, and, you know, you look at courses and, you know, average learning is about 1%. This is what we see in the program is that, yeah, they're abstaining, they're stopping for a while, but they're not doing the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is the encouragement and the constant shout for me now is like, hey, what we're going to do, what we really designed in the beginning with One Year No Beer is we're going to use not drinking, right, as as an excuse, as a window for you to really focus on your personal development. And so all of the stuff is in there in the challenge each day. We're helping you with habits, with routines. We're helping you think about meaning and purpose and direction and your life, setting goals, right? All of the core elements are in there just in that challenge. I mean, it's 27 quid. It's a life-changing program to help you really focus on the reasons why this drinking is showing up. Um, and then we've had to develop programs at a higher level. So we have group coaching programs. We have one-to-one coaching program. And then last year, we launched what uh, I believe is going to transform this business. Uh, well, it is already has transformed this business. But more importantly, um, this is 
the product that I believe we can make a significant dent and impact in the world. Um, so we developed a, a program for at the moment is for business owners, senior leaders, execs, high achievers. Um, one of the reasons why we call out um, that in specifically is because um, we're trying to identify an internal locus of control. Mm. So an internal locus of control, they can change their own environment and they believe they can show up in the world, all of that stuff. So we put people through a program which is, imagine it's sort of like a preventative wellness, neuroscience-based, tech-enabled um, rehab without going to a location. We do this at work. We do this in your daily place. Um, what we do is some really, really cool stuff. We do some, obviously, some trauma work. Um, we do some coaching and things that had to build habits. Habits are like, I always say to people, um, when you're when you're changing a relationship with a compulsive behavior or you have a compulsive behavior, your habits are the life raft. Okay, so if you if you have a derail or an issue, which could be grief or being sacked or any big moment like that, if your habits are not there, you've got no life raft. If you have habits, you've got a chance of, of, of grabbing on safe. something. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so they're like a, a foundational pillar. But then the the cool stuff is that we send them cool technology. We remotely monitor them. Uh, our accountability team basically kicks their ass. I mean, if they don't meditate and do their breath work and specific things like that, they get a text message within a day, but they get a phone call on day two. Like, what are you doing? Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, this is extreme, great. Extreme accountability because we know what it's like. This is a very, yeah. very busy, business, uh, busy professionals. Um, and also we've got to take people. So our, my big thing was not only are people searching for control earlier, but that's what people want. People don't want to really stop drinking alcohol. Most people want to have a better relationship with alcohol because it's so prevalent in society. So they're like, oh, if I could take it or leave it, or if I could have it a handful of times a year. So my big thing is that I believe anyone, right, can have a take it or leave it relationship with a compulsive, compulsive uh, or an addictive substance like alcohol. That is very contrary to a lot of the old science out there. Um, it's something I'd be quite proud of to have on my gravestone of, you know, one of the men or the man, this is my ego again, the man who proved moderation was possible. Um, sure, if you're waking up in the morning and you're homeless and you're pouring whiskey on your cornflakes, um, if that's what you chose, then it's going to be very, very difficult for you to get to that stage. But I believe with the understanding of the brain, neuroscience, our emotions, regulation, all of these key things that anyone could. Now, that's for down the track. Right now, we are taking people who feel like alcohol has shown up a little bit negatively in their life or they feel like they're slightly out of control of it. They're operating a high level and um, we're helping them to get to a place where they can take it or leave it. Now, to do that, we've got to go through a pretty intensive program in eight weeks of understanding the reasons why it's coming up. Um, and yeah, this is, this is the program we're fully focused on now that uh, is changing lives. The journey to become the man who proved that moderation was possible. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the One Year No Beer podcast, where our mission is to share and tell the stories of the everyday heroes who are taking the steps to make a meaningful impact by changing their relationship with alcohol. If you want to join our community and find out more about the variety of benefits that you can enjoy by becoming part of our 80,000 plus members within our alcohol-free movement, then click the link in the show notes below.